Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. Doc's personal loan options at drdoclending.com slash DaVinci. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm honored this week to be joined by Dr. Amit Mehta, who is a interventional radiologist, a serial med tech entrepreneur, and a venture capitalist. So Dr. Mehta, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. No, thanks for having me. Awesome. So maybe give us a little bit of background about you know where you went to school, where you did your residency training, and, and maybe just a general overview of your clinical practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I grew up actually in Canada, um, of all places, and uh, did undergrad in medical school there. And was working on some projects at the time with a specific interest sort of in computer applications and medicine and that a lot of the northern part of Canada is underserviced. And it was, uh, this is before teleradiology or telemedicine was a thing. Um, had some early ideas for incepting a teleradiology, telemedicine. So this is before I was going into radiology, but um, thought that there was an opportunity to deliver care, you know, over quote unquote internet again, I'm dating myself, but um, not as robust as it was back then. We used to use those 2400 baud dial-in modems um, and bulletin boards. But the 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 nascent idea of this telemedicine environment um, was kicking around in my head. Um, so couldn't find that avenue to express myself sort of entrepreneurially in Canada. So applied and, and went to residency uh, at Harvard in the Mass General System. And so did all my training there um, and specifically continue to have an interest in computer applications and medicine and specifically then in radiology. Radiology was just a specialty that suited my personality really well. Just tech enabled, you know, on the cutting edge, both from a technology standpoint, as well as a medical device standpoint, which is something else I had interest in. So went through training there, ran a lab, you know, ran some courses, wrote some books and got really involved in that ecosystem, which, you know, was a great place to train just because the resources were unbelievable. You know, I wanted to write a book. And so they hooked me up with Springer as a publisher and I wanted to run a CME course. They hooked me up with a CME person. And and so did all that stuff. And then while I was there, ran a, a lab that did some early work in installing the first sort of PAC system in the country, which was the move from film in radiology to computers, which, you know, people today, I think we take for granted that everything is read on a computer and we have 3D slices and all this sort of stuff. But back then we were still reading, uh, and this is, you know, 2005, we were reading on film. And so installed that and got interested in AI and medical device and a lot of things that were going on in that Boston, Harvard, MIT ecosystem and, and really enjoyed doing that. So continued doing that while maintaining sort of my tradecraft as a as a radiologist 
then sort of finished radi residency and did interventional radiology, again, sort of minimally invasive image guided surgery, specific because I had an interest in medical devices and developing medical devices, had some ideas that ran patents around and, and sort of worked on early sort of company formation and trying to fi figure that out. At that time, while I was doing that and working on these devices, I got really involved with regulatory for medical devices and the FDA and understanding how well that worked. And at the time, there was an evolution in, in, in imaging specifically from the FDA's standpoint in that the FDA had put out position papers and understanding that imaging was acceptable as a surrogate biomarker to what conventionally had been biomarkers for drug trials. So for example, if you had a liver cancer hepatoma drug, traditionally you would give the drug and you would measure serial AFPs in a patient and that blood level would tell you whether the drug was active or inactive. But the FDA realized that that was a little bit more qualitative than quantitative. And if there was a quantitative way of measuring this, it was better. And a CAT scan or a CT scan is much better. You can look at a tumor and it's 10 centimeters and you give the drug and now it's two centimeters much more objective evidence that that drug was working. So they started to approve imaging as a surrogate biomarker to these blood markers. And so that built an entire industry around using imaging. So at that time, I sort of returned back to Canada, felt bad, you know, it's a little bit of a brain drain out of Canada. I spent I spent um, probably a, a, a 20th or a 50th on my medical, medical education in Canada compared to the U.S., um, I started working there and and set out to sort of start this um, this company where we could use imaging in clinical trials. Found uh, a pretty big headwind in Canada at the time: entrepreneurship, venture, money, all of that. As a, I, I just happened to be very young because I'd gone through medical school very quickly. So I was 23, 24 at the time. wasn't cool back then to to raise money. Um, you were just a kid, and no one really took you seriously. Um, so started sort of shopping the idea around and found myself in Texas, where um, the group, when I pitched the the idea here, as you know, there was two components to it. There was a business infrastructure component, and then there was a clinical medical component. I needed a bunch of radiologists to read these images. They said, look, we'll be the radiology group who reads for this company and signed up as angel investors into the company. And luckily, you know, several years later, Two years ago, we sold the company to a, a public, you know, which all the stuff is sort of public um, for for a, a great outcome for everybody. That's amazing. Is that that's intrinsic imaging? Is that was that the name of that company? Yeah, right? that was intrinsic imaging, right? Which was one of the only four what are called imaging CROs. Okay. Um, and we had a interestingly the dovetails into you know my early interest when you start a company like that you're generic in terms of we were doing MSK trials, oncology trials, neuro trials, whatever it was. Uh, medical device, our sort of expertise was primarily around AI and running AI trials, specifically in radiology and imaging. So um, just about a year before we had sold the company, we had essentially run every AI trial for every FDA approved product in the US um, for radiology, except for one or two products. Um, so we had become experts in sort of understanding the application of AI and applica application of computer technologies, whether it's CAD, AI, machine learning, neural nets, whatever you want to call it, uh, in imaging specifically, which, you know, for AI in this, in our generation here has become the sort of first foray into, there's lots of people saying this is going to put, you know, doctors out of business, but I can tell you, uh, I think it's pretty far away. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So you, you were really on the kind of the early stages of vetting these, all these AI algorithms out there. So that, that, that was a, it sounds like a big part of your, 
your company's uh, work was doing the, the actual clinical trials to verify those algorithms. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So we had, you know, there's a there's a clinical component and then there's a technical component. And the, for the regulatory perspective, the FDA wants to know if you're using it as a quote unquote medical device, is it doing what it's going to say? And so we were run, running these trials and they're called MRMC or multi-reader, multi-case trials where you would double blind and put patients in uh, images in and have radiologists read with and without the AI with a certain amount of time in between for to forget the images, et cetera. There's a whole infrastructure of uh, of a of a system that the that that had been developed by the FDA and developed by academics to say this is how you can test an algorithm to ensure that it actually is providing clinical benefit. So a lot of the early sort of breast mammo, we sort of extended that through other parts of the body, you know, liver, brain, bones, et cetera. That's amazing. And then you you started this when you were early in practice out of out of training. And then I guess what was your role? Were you like chief medical officer? And I guess how did you balance that with your practice? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, I feel like I ran two full time jobs for about seven or eight years. But uh, yeah, we it was a combination of I was the you know the founder, the chief medical officer, the sort of grand poop of oh, plugged in computers and hired people and fire people, but it, over the course of the first couple of years, we did hire a full C-suite and we had, you know, for a business like that, there's a lot of regulatory scrutiny. So we had project managers and QA people and um, the company started originally out of Texas, but um, ended up pulling and moving the roots to Boston where, you know, I trained and had connections into Mass General. And we used to use a lot of the radiologists out of Mass General as well when we needed specialty work, just because of the amount of research and some of the more um, specific clinical trials were better suited out of there. So we started oper we had operations in a, in three places of which, um, Boston was the headquarters. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and then you exited uh, very recently. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, we sold the company in 2021 to a, to a large global, uh, company called WCG, which is the largest sort of clinical trial company now in the world. They were on a, on a, sort of spree they went public in july of 2021 and part of that was uh an opportunity for them to roll up various pieces in the clinical trial chain and so they had an irb piece and a data management piece and dsmb piece and etc and one piece they were missing was the imaging component um and so we were a good fit for rounding out the offering as they went public so that they can go to pharma and say, look, we have a full suite of offering of all the tools that you need to run a clinical trial. Um, so we were we were acquired uh, somewhat of an aqua hire. I stayed on for a couple of years just to help, but also an economic you know exit for us as as investors, as operators, as um, as the ideation folks. So all in all, it was a good good exit for everybody. Interesting. You know, I'm curious that one of my attendings told me recently, there's, there's something like you would probably know better than me, maybe like six, 700 AI companies, like radiology, AI companies specifically out there. I'm curious, based on your experience, like we, obviously we can't have 700 AI companies probably for just radiology. I'm curious what, which of those, like what characteristics do you think will be of the ones that last or that are with us for the long term? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I don't know the number. I think when for the numbers that we had in terms of companies that we were looking at doing trials, there were sub hundred. But, you know, there's a lot of components that go into it besides just the technology. I mean, are they funded? Can they own a can they afford a clinical trial? Do they do they need FDA approval? Are they operating in the US or just outside the US? Is it a 
uh, you know, a radiologist driven product or just an automated product. So there's lots of pieces that go into that. But I think, you know, in the US, the biggest piece of this is who is going to pay for this, right? And that's always been the issue is that there's no reimbursement category for the AI piece of it, except for mammography. You know, mammography many years ago, people fought the fight with Congress and, and got uh, reimbursement for specifically computer applications in, in mammography. And it wasn't necessarily AI, it was sort of CAD, which is 1.0, which was just detection. But there is a, there has been no advance in that reimbursement piece. And we've seen lots of companies come and go, venture back to the tune of 100 million, not, you know, had no product for sale because there's no buyer. If you look at the constituents in the healthcare system, there's three, right? There's the patient, there's the provider, and there's the payer in, in a very generic scope. We've learned in the experience of 3D mammography that patients don't want to pay for anything, right? We expect insurance to pay for all of our healthcare if we have insurance. And those who are uninsured typically don't pay for healthcare. So the patient's not paying for it. The provider doesn't have the cap the capacity to pay for it, right? Our reimbursement as a provider is just going down every year. So there's less in the pie for the provider. And economically, it doesn't really make sense. If I'm making $20 to read a CT scan, it's not economically viable for me to pay $5 for an algorithm that detects a lung nodule, $5 for an algorithm that detects a rib fracture, $5 for an algorithm that detects a PE, $5 for, an, you know, it goes on. I mean, there's not, there's not, there's not enough in that bucket. So they're out. And then you've got the payers left and the payers don't want to pay for anything. So when we can't even get payers to pay for things that are legit, right? I mean, we get denied on claims that have that are legitimate and that that's a whole separate discussion. So there's no constituent in the healthcare system who's going to pay for this. So that's, I think there was a, a rash of AI companies that pulled out at the beginning, just like the sort of chat GPT generative AI stuff now, right? There's a huge rash of these companies. People think it's amazing. And conceptually, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as a VC who looks at a lot of decks, I looked at hundreds of these companies at the beginning, and all of them had slide number one, which was very appropriate. It said, there is a shortage of doctors, and especially a shortage of radiologists, with an incredible explosion in the number of images. And they always have this graph where number of images is going up exponentially, and number of doctors is going down, literally. So, you know, from, from an investor standpoint, that as an addressable market makes a lot of sense. But you have to be a healthcare, I think, investor to get into the weeds to realize that despite all that, there's no one who can pay for it. And the only pair that sort of come out of it is probably the vendors. So, you know, GE, Siemens, et cetera, will buy something, an algorithm to put on a piece of equipment so that they have a value add that their machine is better than somebody else's. But they're also not dumb. They're big companies. They've spent their own capital on developing their own AI products in-house. So Siemens, you know, we recently bought a Siemens, Siemens CT scanner. It came with a chest nodule algorithm that they had built already, built it. They didn't buy that from someone. Siemens Research Health and Years developed the algorithm themselves. Wow, that's really interesting. I guess shifting gears a little bit, you, in addition to AI and uh, clinical trial work, you also have done medical device uh, development as well. I'm curious how, how you got into doing that and was this something you always wanted to do or was it more just a matter of kind of seeing clinical needs, you know, as a first, you know, as an end user, as an interventional radiologist? Yeah, I mean, that's where it started. I have to say, I mean, you know, as an interventional radiologist, you're using a ton of equipment and interventional radiology was a place where there was a lot of innovation and development um, over the years. So, uh, you know, I was seeing new devices come out all the time and just sort of had an idea of tinkering and, and just sort of building and doing that. And so I got interested in medical devices very early on and developed 
a couple that went down sort of the patent pathway and then started to, to sort of create a company around that. And that's when I got more interested in investing. You know, I was trying to raise money for some of those medical device companies and realize the challenge. And there was, you know, there's a certain level of expertise as a physician, especially as a device sort of operator and user that that is 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 valuable when you're sort of starting a company. And so I realized that investors listened um, because we were subject matter experts on this and sort of got deeper and deeper into that world. And then when I moved into Texas, started working with incubators and J&J Labs and some of these other places doing medical device development. So currently we have a device, a spinal fusion device um, in development. We got very interested in that early on. And that segued into a career, into investing, just sort of those two things go hand in hand, right? There's the development and the operations component, and then there's the investment component, raising money for that, which in and of itself is a whole different skill set. Um, so, you know, I had surrounded myself with a lot of folks who were really good at the, we all realized very early on, we probably, we we're all good at the operation development part. We None of us were good at the fundraising part. So as sort of said, they all kind of said, well, why don't you do the fundraising part? Because you like to talk more than everybody else. So off I went on the fundraising part. And that's how that career evolved in itself. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to ask you how you, you know, you also do, you're not only a business operator, but you're also a, an investor now, a venture capitalist. And so is this the the Builders VC? Is that the first fund you've you've been a part of, or were you was this something you previously had been a part of as well? No, so we're <clears throat> Builders VC. We're on our second fund. So the first fund was um, 175 million. The second fund's 250 million. So just 400 ish in under management. Prior to that, we had two other funds called Formation Eight, um, which was a total of a, uh, about just under a billion in management. Um, very same thesis: Series A and seed funds. So early investors pretty much tech investors, um, which was interesting because it was a departure from my original sort of medical device. We don't do any drug or device just because the regulatory cycle and time it takes for approval is outside the window of a Series A seed fund in terms of where we need our returns to be for our LPs. Um, so it was a little bit different, but the but the environment, the understanding, the, the sort of running these investments, understanding due diligence and how to do this thing is all very similar skill set. And so I was a venture partner in the prior funds and sort of got my feet wet, learned how to do it, you know, made some investments, sat on boards, did all of that work over the course of several years, and then matriculated into being a general partner in these funds in this last fund, and um, which is a different responsibility set and a different, um, you know, both from from a from a responsibility, from an economic standpoint, from a responsibility standpoint, um, it's very much more dependent on on the general partners of a fund. Um, so these, yeah, it's been the culmination of this is the fourth fund I've been part of um, over the course of the last decade. That's really cool. I'm curious, you know, you have that unique perspective, both as an operator and then a business operator, and then also as an investor, you know, people come up with ideas all the time, especially in, you know, digital health or med tech. And I'm curious, you know, where, how do you evaluate ideas? I guess one is like when you as an entrepreneur think, you know, cause I'm sure you've had many ideas over the course of your career, like which ones did you decide to go with? And I guess kind of a two-part on the investor side, like how do you, you know, say like, you know what, that's an idea I want to go with as an investor. Yeah. I mean, so it's interesting, you know, I think as physicians are sort of type A and very, you know, it's not, it's, there is very little fake it till you make it kind of thing. It's very, you know, you can't fake it till you make it because you got to know how to do the surgery or the procedure before you get in there. So, you know, it's, it's, diff it's, it's a different mindset than most, I think, 
I would say investors, venture capital, I mean, that really wanted to be a master of the domain before, you know, took responsibility for deploying other people's money, like in a fund. And so I sort of saw it on in three spheres of influence. One was truly as an operator and understanding, and you hear lots of operators who become VCs because truly, I mean, you understand what the operators are going through and you can help these companies navigate as you sit on the board. So there was one in the Venn diagram, there was the sphere of influence as an operator, the sphere of influence as an investor and understanding you know, how to write a term sheet and what Perry Pasumi is and what pay to play means and all of those sort of things. And then this sphere of influence, which I sort of believe is a secret weapon as a clinician. And so when as a healthcare investor, you know, digital health's a little different, but for most healthcare, like what I just explained to you on AI for payer provider, like I don't think I would understand that unless I was on the ground and as a user, you know, and a lot of these things come because of that clinical experience and understanding how payers pay us and all the trials and tribulations of insurance and how patients believe the way they navigate the healthcare system and how providers understand that, you know, whether we like it or not, there's an economic component to medicine and that drives a lot of decisions. So a lot of those pieces come from being a clinician. And that's why I've not ever let that go in terms of part of what I just think that's sort of one of my secret sauces um, is understanding from the clinician's perspective. And so to answer your question, you know, we look at a lot of investments, right? I mean, we look at a couple hundred a week of stuff that comes in. And I have to say a lot to entrepreneurs, it's a lot of, I mean, the things sort of, the, the investments shake out in two, in two buckets very initially. One is that a lot of these investments are good. They're just not right for a fund like ours. Like we are a seed or a series A fund. So if it's a late stage series C investment, it's not something we would do. Just the economics and the mechanics don't work for the type of fund we are. It's not that it's a bad investment. It's just not where we are or a pre-seed investment that's an idea on a napkin. You know, we're funding things that have product market fit and already have revenue. So right off the bat, we sort of eliminate a lot of investment and we don't look that deep, not because they're bad, they just don't fit our investment profile. And of the ones that fit our investment profile in venture, you know, there's a power law theory in venture of the way you have to invest in that, you know, if you look at it, 95% of venture investments go to zero. It's the 5% that return all the money for a fund. So we're really looking for category killer platform type investments and, you know, excuse the pun, but in medicine, it's the difference between an antibiotic and a vitamin. You know, we're looking for antibiotics, not vitamins. And so um, it's not to say vitamins are bad. And there's lots of vitamins that have hit it big. But as a fund in a repetitive sort of fashion that learns from our pattern of investing, we're looking for antibiotics that are essential to the system rather than vitamins. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. And then it's interesting. I think people don't fully understand that, like how funds, especially physicians, like how funds work, how there's, you know, there's that timetable. And, you know, I have a brother who's in private equity. So he tells me about these, you know, five, six year funds and and all those types of things. So I, I'm a little bit aware, but um, that's interesting to hear your perspective as being on the VC side of things. I'm curious, you know, when you're, you know, when if you're doing a device or something, you know, before that venture stage, you know, and you're, you've got a device and you're looking for, you know, you realize you can't just fund this yourself, even if you're, you know, a busy physician with a good salary. I guess, what type of investors do you think are the best in those, like, you know, in terms of like angel investors or family and friends type round, like, is it better to just find people that will give you money and kind of just let you run with it? Or is it better to find people with like the experience that can kind of, you know, help advise you? I guess, what's been your experience with that? And what do you, what do you how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I tell everyone the same thing. 
get the dollar from wherever you can get it. it to me it is the hardest thing in the world to raise money whether it's us as a fund raising from LPs or institutional investors like a state endowment down to your neighbor um it's hard like you have to convince people that you are smart enough good enough you know to to basically take their dollars and give them a return so you know, my advice typically is just take it wherever you can get it. But if you had a choice, yeah, obviously, you know, more intelligent, and I don't mean, you know, IQ wise, more connected, seasoned, experienced investors are better in that they can help you navigate stuff that you may or may not know. But their angel groups are great. Um, we run an angel group here locally, I do. Um, and we deploy capital and bring together people who have interest in um, angel investing, um, and then friends and family, obviously. And then, you know, the conventional two guys in a garage maxing out their credit cards. I mean, if you have conviction over something and you think it's that good, it goes a long way to show people that, you know, you've watched Shark Tank probably, right? Like I spent all my money and maxed out all my credit. I mean, people look at that. I mean, you obviously have conviction over what you're doing as opposed to when it's someone else's dime, it's a lot easier to spend their money than, than yours. You know, like I always try to, when we look at companies that we're about to make an investment in series A and the CEO is making, you know, 700 grand or something like that. Like it just, you know, you're a startup, you're asking to raise three or $4 million. Like the CEO can't make that much. So it, it it's very important for optics to make sure that you are, are aligned with your investors. That's interesting. Another side of it, building a startup, I guess, what's your advice on like finding co-founders and people to actually build this with you, I guess, because I, in a way it's, it's almost like a marriage. I mean, you're legally, you know, especially if you give them equity, like you're tied to these people uh, and it's very messy to get, you know, if you have to go separate ways. So I'm curious, like, you know, how you vet people that you would want to, you know, start a company with and, and do this and, you know, do this long-term with. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's been natural in that, you know, friends or or colleagues that we were discussing things and it just made sense that we came up with the ideas together. But I think if if you're starting something and you need a co-founder, whether and, you know, most of the time it may be, for example, I mean, I'm not a, a full time coder. You know, I can do some basic coding, but if I'm building a tech enabled telemedicine app, then I'm going to need a CTO co-founder. Um, so the, my advice for that has always been you know, one, you got to get along and two, just make sure that everyone's skill sets are, you know, that the Venn diagram crosses over, but the where it crosses over is pretty small and that that person is on the team and doing things because they do things that you can't. Because the places where I've seen a lot of startups trip up is where the there's two CEOs. And I can tell you the worst pitches we get are when there's two, there's co-CEOs and they're talking all over each other because they both have the same skill set and they both, both have the same expertise. And so when one person says something that the other one doesn't like, then they interrupt and, and count and contradict what their other CEO said. And it's always a mess. So make sure that, you know, you and, you know, if you're starting a company like that and you think it's going to be big someday, you want to retain equity. Right. So you only want to give equity where you really need it. So if you have two co-founders who are experts in spinal fusion devices, it doesn't I mean you only need one. And then you need a technical person, an engineer, and you need a business person who can sell and et cetera. So. You know, complement your team, both skill set and um, outlook kind of, you know, personality wise, as opposed to just sort of haphazardly putting a bunch of people together. You, you end up paying for it in the long run. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, I'm curious, you know, you're still practicing, you know, interventional radiology, you're doing entrepreneurship, you're doing VC. How do you balance all this stuff? I mean, what's your, what does your like yeah. week to week schedule look like? <laughs> <laughs> I sleep eight hours a night. Now, really? um, 
when I was first getting into all of this and and sort of deciding sort of where to go and what I wanted to do, what I kind of realized that one of my really one of my superpowers was multitasking and being able to organize and compartmentalize. And, you know, what you realize or what I realize in a lot of these things that I do, that there's sprints in certain things. So we may be working on an investment right now that is 50 hours this week. But once we're through that investment and we've written that check, there's a lull where we're looking for our next investment, where the amount of work necessary for that next piece is nowhere close to the due diligence, the lawyers, all of the work we're doing in putting this investment together right now. And so there's time in that where most people sort of go, okay, I'm going to just breathe and relax in that lull when that, you know, that curve comes down. I just pick up one of my other things and work on those things. Um, So I would say that is the biggest part. And then there's a second piece of that, which, you know, as a operator and a, and a technician and an international radiologist, over time, what's interesting has become is that a lot of the skill set of doing the cases that I'm doing have become very second nature to me because I've done thousands and thousands of them. And so it's not, I remember when I first started, you know, every night I would look up the cases the night before, watch YouTube videos, read about it and stressed every night for 10 years probably, right? Like, how do you, I want to make sure, even though there were things that were routine to me, you know, it was all someone's life, you know, at, you just, it, but over time, as you just become a lot more facile, it's very, very rote and it becomes very second nature to you that that stress goes away and it opens up a huge opportunity to do other things. So believe me, for the first 10 years of my clinical career, I was very focused on just that was that was that to just become the best at what I could do and, and understand how to do that sort of skill set. That's really interesting. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, it's also building a great team. It sounds like what you've done with many of your ventures. And then, uh, you know, I think uh, keeping things, you know, keeping yourself focused when you need to be and then uh, shifting that focus to, you know, like you said, the next the next venture, the next project. That's that's really cool. I'm really 87. I know I look 21. But... <laughs> I'm curious in terms of like physician entrepreneurship. Like I guess as a as if you have all these things going on, why do you continue? Some people may ask why why do you continue to practice? Like what especially like, you know, it sounds like you keep a very full clinical schedule. Have you ever thought about going part-time or just not even or just leaving clinical practice altogether? I guess I guess why do you keep doing uh clinical practice is my question. Yeah, believe me, every day I think about that, you know, where, what, how, and I, you know, I just, I still love it. Like I really, that was truly my first love. And, uh, you know, the beauty and the thing I think every day is that for me, I found the right specialty. Like, you know, I, I read a lot about, I'm on a lot of forums and things about alternative things for physicians, do this consulting, work for a drug company, go do this because everyone's, everyone's not happy with their job. And I get it. And I have lots of friends who are in that. Like if I had to do a lot of EMR, you know, documentation, I think I'd, I'd probably be in the same boat. But the radiology specifically and interventional radiology is exactly 100% suited to my mindset, skill set and outlook um, for everything that I do. You know, there's days, believe me, when I'm taking call at three in the morning in the ER and, you know, someone comes in and with a lump that they've had for four years and they end up in the year at 3 a.m. just because, you know, everything was closed. Like I get frustrated, but for the most part, 95% of the time, I mean, this is the perfect fit for me. I found the fit. And if it didn't fit, I think I'd be a lot less hesitant to just let it go. 
Um, that's the biggest part. And then they also, the other part is what I was mentioning before. I just think being on the ground and understanding the changes in healthcare and the applicability of technology and what's going on just makes me a better investor. Um, we, you know, passed on several investments where I was like, you know what, this is not, this is a great idea. I mean, I would love to have this, but it's just not going to work because there's no payer. There's no this, there's no that. And sure enough, you know, I maintain a database of following these investments out and they do, they, uh, you know, more, uh, don't get me wrong. I've made mistakes and missed on investments that became, you know, public multi-billion dollar companies, but uh, the the hit rate is pretty high on the ones that, you know, I would have sort of foreseen that are going to fail, not fail, but are not going to get the traction that they really wanted. Interesting. You know, I'm curious is, also on the physician entrepreneurship front, you know, like you said, many physicians are kind of looking for, you know, side hustles or or other opportunities and things like that. I guess what's your advice on because I think on you to I mean, I don't have to tell you this, you've you've been down this road many times, is that entrepreneurship, while it can be very rewarding and lucrative, it's also very risky. And and I guess what's your advice to, you know, because a physician, if you stay practicing, you have a stable salary, you have job security, if you try to do, you know venture or, you know, build a company or anything like that, you're taking a lot more risk. I guess, what's your advice on physicians contemplating that, you know, vetting, I guess, you know, they, they have these ideas or they have, you know, a thought about a business, I guess, what's your advice on that? If how they should vet and really, I guess, weigh those pros and cons of, of pursuing that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, you know, physicians in general are type A high functioning folks, but I think they also miss the fact that, this stuff is not easy. And I think you really need to, before you start on a venture like this, to sit down and, and have some introspection and really, am I that person? Like, do I, can I do more than one thing? Can I multitask? Well, am I, you know, when you, like I come home at six 30 and then eat dinner and then work for a few hours while other people, well, I, you know, other friends of mine have finished Netflix. Right. So it's sort of, you got to figure out who you are and if it's the right fit, I think there's a, very much so there's a you look at your neighbor your friend your colleague and you say well if they're doing it i can do it well it's not always those are the people that i found that get into it and then realize that you know i should have never done it because it's just it's not my personality like i see others doing it other physicians doing it and therefore i want to do it but it's not the right fit so it's really some introspection to you know why am i doing this is it because i truly believe in this and i really want to do it and i love it and i'm going to put the extra you know 80 to 100 hours a week in or is it just because somebody else is doing it and I think it's cool and, and I'm burnt out? You know, if you're burnt out, then go find something else to do other than, um, you know. And I, I have a friend of mine who's a vascular surgeon. He's just, you know, guy's 42. He's leaving. And sure enough, he's going to do real estate. I mean, there are other avenues you that you can do as a physician entrepreneur that don't have to be medical devices, investing, whatever. The other thing I would tell people to do is first is become an angel investor. Allocate some portion of capital and go make some angel investments and be involved in the companies that you're working with and try to be sector specific, pick medical healthcare type startups where you have some edge. And like we were talking about before, the entrepreneur, again, should take all the money they can get, but your dollar is, is, you know, is probably worth something more as a physician and tell them, I'll help you. I want to, you know, help you grow your business and be involved and then get an understanding for what that process looks like and what that entrepreneur is going through and then decide, you know, the one good thing about medicine is you have this safety net, this base of this day job sort of, which is busy. 
which is make no mistake, right? People are seeing 70, 80 patients. I mean, we do a ton every day. So it's not like there's a lack of, of, of not being busy. So take the time to decide whether it's the right move for you. Sure. Sure. Well, awesome. Um, my last question I ask everybody is uh, when you're not doing, you know, interventional radiology and venture and entrepreneurship, how, how do you uh, balance your life if you can find that balance? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm, um, you know, we do a lot of sort of outdoorsy kind of things uh, and, and try to stay healthy, but the, my, I always kind of like the Zuckerberg thing. I pick something each year and try to work on that. So um, this year, like, so this year I've, you know, decided generative AI is going to be something I'm going to focus on and sort of figure out. So I built a, a store that automatically through jet GPT generates art with a description and artist, and then puts it on a Shopify store. And then every 15 minutes generates a new piece of art and it's all automated and sells this art. And so we've sold 30 paintings so far, you know, it's been up a week and a half, but you know, those kinds of things are tinker around with, Technology is something that I have deep interest in and like understanding. Um, and then, you know, human longevity and, and just different things each year that I kind of try to focus on and, and do a deep dive and get a, a deep understanding and try to um, make either changes or, or, or moves in that in those different segments. Very cool. Very cool. I guess the last thing is where can uh, people find out more about you or connect with you? Uh, and you know, are there any platforms you're active on or anything you want to promote? Yeah, I'm uh LinkedIn's probably a good place in terms of of being more from a business standpoint, being more centralized. I mean, I'm on I'm on all the social media platforms as well, but you can put my email in the show notes as well and and straight up just email. I mean, we're always on email and and have people looking at that stuff all the time. So, um if you're a company or an entrepreneur that has an idea, I mean, happy to look at a deck and see if it's a fit again. You know, just because we say no to something doesn't mean it's a bad idea. It's just it may not fit our investment criteria as a fund at Builders. Um, but yeah, happy to help and look at anything that people are working on. Love position entrepreneurs and love what they're doing. Um, so happy to help anybody who's either an operator, an entrepreneur, or a position, or, or even in other non-adjacent segments um, or your listeners who, who may be doing stuff. You know, Like I said, we're all, I'm always looking at adjacent technologies and other things. So um, we have some expertise in those other things or have partners who do that kind of stuff as well. Um, so love looking at those things and, and understanding new ideas and what people are working on. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much again for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it being on the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or a review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.